Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, this is Adrian Hernandez. I'm today's uh, host for uh, NIH Collaboratory uh, podcast. And we're here with uh, Nigam Shah, who uh, recently did a Grand Rounds on something very interesting in terms of how could you leverage data uh, from patients' experience in the past to inform care decisions today. His talk was entitled, It's Time to Learn from Patients Like Mine, and he discussed uh, something that they're doing at Stanford with a green button. Nigam, uh, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's the problem that uh, you're aiming to solve. I think the core idea here is that uh, when clinicians are faced with an ambiguous situation, our natural uh, tendency is to consult our colleagues to seek their opinion. And given the adoption of electronic health records, uh, the collective opinion of the colleagues is recorded in the data warehouse. And we wanted to set up a mechanism where you could consult that collective wisdom of your institution to help inform the decisions you would make. Well, uh, that's quite interesting. I mean, it's a huge problem here. And um, what what have you done to try to address it? So we've been at it for a couple of years. Uh, our original uh, vision was to think of it as a tool. And then very quickly, we realized that given all of the issues in the data and the nuances around it, uh, instead of a tool mindset, it's better to set it up as a service. And so just like we have specialty services for pathology, for radiology, we sort of piggyback on the subspecialty of informatics and set it up in a way that a clinician can consult uh, an informatics specialist who would be the person who then elucidates the situation, writes the necessary queries from the data, does the analysis, and the report out is again a, a, a physical report with an interpretation of what are the data saying given the context and what can and cannot be inferred or concluded from the analysis. Well, that's quite interesting. So uh, so kind of a combination of data analytics in a consultative service, is that right? Absolutely. So there's some tools, there's data, and then there's a, a, a qualified people, and all three of them together, all three things together, comprise uh, the service. Can you give me an example? Um, how does this actually work uh, in real time? So, for example, uh, we had a, a clinician who saw a, a patient who had a mild elevation of the uh, kappa and gamma light chains, uh, but the uh, serum electrophoresis ratio was normal. And the question they had was, you know, what is the increased risk of malignancy, a hematological malignancy for this patient? And the driver for that question was, like, when to seek follow-up. And so when they reached out to us in the conversation, we learned that the, the main concern is we're seeing this slight abnormality. Everything else looks normal. When should we see the patient again? And based on our uh, data warehouse, we found, based on roughly 1,000 patients, uh, that those who had this particular kind of result had a very high chance of, being, uh, of having a hematological malignancy in the next six months. And so we said, you know, have a shorter follow-up and not a one- or two-year follow-up. Huh. 
That, so that's really interesting because, you know, originally I th- was thinking that what you're aiming to do is um, answer questions about, you know, whether a, a therapy works or not. But that's a great illustration of just something that helps guide practice um, and gives someone an answer that uh, they wouldn't have otherwise known. Absolutely. So when we started, we started with the same mindset that you, you illustrated, that we thought people would ask us questions about what therapies to choose. But the majority of the questions ended up of a slightly different nature, which is how often does something happen? Wow. Give me an a idea of what's the size of the, the, the data that you all are working with. You know, how many patients or um, you know, how, what's, how's, this, how's this work? So we have about three data sources that uh, we go to for uh, serving this or provisioning this service. The core source is the Stanford Clinical Data Warehouse, uh, which has data from our pediatric hospital and the adult hospital and the the outpatient clinics. That's about 3 million lives uh, uh, over 8 to 10 years. And then we also have access to uh, commercial claims data from uh, Truven Market Scan and from Optum ClinMark. And those we go to in situations where you know, either the outcome is rare or it is possible to phrase the question uh, using variables found in the claims data set. So the, the, collectively, it's about 200 million patients, but about two, 3 million is EHR data, uh, and the rest is, uh, is claims. Wow. And then um, you know, what's uh, kind of the turnaround? Like what, how fast can, does this go? So anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. So think of it like a send out lab. Uh, Depending on the complexity of the question, we could get back in a day. Sometimes the cohort is really big and we have to do a high dimensional propensity based matching. It could take a couple of days, but yeah, less than 72 hours for the most part. That's pretty incredible. And then um, in terms of like service areas or clinical areas, um, uh, what areas have you guys covered? So we've done at least one question from pretty much all clinical specialties on campus. Uh, The majority of the questions have been internal medicine, hospitalist medicine, uh, which could be just be an artifact of the fact that I'm appointed in the Department of Medicine. Uh, The next big is cardiology, oncology, a decent amount of pediatrics questions as well, and a couple from uh, the surgical disciplines. Interesting. And then, uh, you know, one thing that's really important um, here is... uh, as I understand it, is that you've done a lot of work in terms of understanding data quality. Can you talk a little about that? You know, how do you ensure that there's data quality? Absolutely. So I think data quality is key. Uh, so we rely quite heavily on our institutional groups, uh, you know, funded by the dean's office and the CTSA that provision the data warehouse. So that's sort of the first line of defense. Uh, then we adopt practices from the Observational Health Data Science and Informatics Group. So where there's these, uh, you know, data quality tools, Achilles being an example, and, and there's equivalent such tools in the uh, PCORnet uh, uh, and uh, Mini Sentinel communities. And iteratively running those tools and then, you know, you fix some errors and that leads to some more. It took us a couple of years to get to a stage where our sort of the core data are of a sufficient enough uh, uh, quality that we're comfortable offering this. Uh, so it's not easy, uh, and without data quality checks, uh, I think it would be a little bit risky to do uh, something like this. Now, uh, people are very interested in having everything automated around healthcare. Uh, do you think this could ever be uh, fully automated, or 
is it really important to have some uh, human uh, interface or, or, or judgment here as you go forward? I mean, I would love for this to be automated. I mean, that's what we envisioned it. But very quickly, we realized that uh, if doctors could be automated, we would have been automated many years ago. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, uh, of having a human in the loop for several reasons. Uh, you know, data quality being one of them, not anticipating the kinds of things that a computer can automatically anticipate, uh, just being aware of the clinical circumstance, the social circumstance. There's a lot of other contextual things that a human can pick up in a 15, 20 minute conversation that would be very difficult for a computer to, uh, to use and factor in when giving the response. Um, so I think for the foreseeable future, I imagine this to be a human in the loop endeavor uh, rather than a fully automated thing. And then I guess the question is that, you know, as people think about advances in terms of um, health technology and, and bringing in data uh, and, and answering questions like this, uh, you, know, you know, some things, if you were to think about the extreme, just like search, right, someone will always get an answer. Um, and here, uh, will you ever give an answer of, I don't know? Absolutely. So that is one of the crucial reasons to have a human in the loop, uh, particularly someone who understands data and statistics, so they can look at all of the different diagnostics and say, you know, yes, the algorithm did return a number and the number could be 2.6, but looking at everything else, I'm telling you, we shouldn't be uh, believing that number. And so there's often situations where the human will override and say, uh, you know, these analyses are not that reliable and we should only, uh, we should not pay attention to the final inference. It sounds like you've had an exciting start and a journey around uh, the green button. Uh, what's it going to look like in uh, the next three or five years? That's a great question. So our immediate next step is that now we've convinced ourselves that we can do this, like technologically, and that the information we provide is well received by the clinicians. So that in my mind is step one. So immediate next thing we wanna do is to examine if by having this service, do we make care better? And it's very hard to design a study that can attribute the improvement to like one intervention. So that's what we're uh, spending most of our effort right now. Uh, we call this phase quality testing or efficacy testing, where we wanna collect information that given the information from the consult, what did the clinicians do? And follow that over time to see uh, that, you know, does that lead to any change in a, in a measurable metric? That is a um, pretty ambitious goal. So we'll, we'll look forward to uh, seeing what you do there and, and sharing it with us, um, especially with uh, what you've described as uh, really being open-ended in terms of the types of questions, the types of areas, uh, from pediatrics to all sorts of specialties, uh, uh, it's that'll be hard to to address. But I know you all will do it. So look forward to that. Oh yeah, we're, we're excited and scared at the same time. That given the breadth, it's very hard to quantify improvement. Uh, but at the same time, the exciting part is that. Again, as a country, we've been talking about learning health system for a while now, and this is, in my mind, a great example of that. Uh, and so even if we can't show utility conclusively at one site, maybe we can partner with other academic centers, you know, piggybacking on the CTSA network, for example, to see that 
can we treat this as a meta-analysis? So, for example, ask the same question at multiple sites and see what answers we get and how often are they consistent with each other? Well, this uh, certainly will uh, push the frontiers and uh, look forward to you, you all continue to advance uh, so-called uh, data into action and uh, learning healthcare system. Absolutely. Well, wish us luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Negum, for uh, joining us on this podcast. Um, thanks for everyone listening to this. And please join us for our next uh, podcast as we continue to highlight fascinating informative changes in the research world especially to advance health. Thank you. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website, and we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time.